Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Those are the first, the, sorry, the last four verses of Psalm 20, which along with Psalm 21 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, July the 10th. 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing in the book of 1 Samuel with uh, chapter 17, verses 31 to 49. Also in uh, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, uh, the 11th chapter, the first 18 verses, and then in Mark's Gospel, the first chapter, verses 14 to 28. So we're continuing with the story saga of David and Goliath and so we've had all this lead up you know the first 30 verses we've we've gone through those that's the lead up that that gets us to the place where David is now saying I'll take him on and the after everybody else has fled from him in fear and so we we get to this point here in verse 31 in chapter 17 of first Samuel and and we see that that they repeated the words David had spoken before Saul and Saul sent for him and David said to Saul let no man's heart fail because of him Goliath your servant will go and fight with this Philistine and Saul said to David you're unable to go against this Philistine to fight with him you're but a youth and he's been a man of war from his youth so you're, you're way overmatched David he knows far more about war than you do and so it's not a good idea. I mean, he's protecting David. He, he, he's saying, you know, I like your zeal and your enthusiasm and your fearlessness. I like all those things, but, but you can't do that. And so he's important to Saul at this point in his life. He, he plays an important role in Saul's life. And then David says, no, look, hey, I used to keep sheep for my father. I don't do that anymore, not full time. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he came against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he's defied the armies of the living God. David's not taking this personally. He's here to defend God's honor if nobody else will. And it appears for a period of time here that nobody else will do it. And then David went on and said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Look, I know why I survived these things. It wasn't because I was skillful, uh, although I do have skill. It's because God delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he'll deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. He has no fear because it's not about him. The battle's not his. It's not up to David to win this thing. He's Look, he's defied the armies of the living God. And so somebody's got to act on God's behalf. And I've said this a million times. I was in Rwanda and, and um, was told on Saturday morning, just as I was leaving literally for the entire day, that I'd be preaching in the cathedral in Ruangari the next day. And I'm like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I just looked at the lessons for the day, and I picked out the psalm is what stuck out to me more than anything else. And, and it was all about the voice of the Lord. It thunders across the waters. It makes the trees writhe and the mountains shake. And, and I began to think, well, how, do I, how do I know that the Lord's speaking to me? And I guess there's two things ultimately that I, that I um, see in that, and that's follow me and fear not. He always calls us to follow him. Every single time, it's a call to follow him. It's beginning with Abraham and going forward. And so 
why then, if I'm following the living God, why does he have to say to me, fear not? Well, because he said it to everybody, right? I mean, he said it to, to Abraham. He said it to Moses. He said it to Joshua, on and on and on down the line. And, and there's a reason he has to say that, because if we're willing to follow him, because very few will, that, then we're gonna, he's going to send us into places where there's going to be uh, reason to fear. We're going to be outnumbered and overwhelmed. But it's not up to us to win that battle. If he's called us to go and do something, then we're not supposed to have fear about that. We're just supposed to say, we'll go. But there will be places of fear. As I've said about Joshua, you know, he um, he was a guy who, who was one of the only two spies, Joshua and Caleb out of the 12, said, hey, let's go take the land. The others came back and said, no, no, there's giants in the land. Well, Goliath's one of those giants, right? And so now it's, well, I'm not talking about one of the same ones, but, but it's that same basic concept. And so Joshua, though, whenever he becomes uh, the one guy, whenever he takes Moses' place, Moses first tells him, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, don't be terrified. And then God says it multiple times in the first nine verses of the book of Joshua. And the reason is, is because it was easier for him to be the two guy. It's always easier to be the bold, brave guy if you're the two guy, because your rear end's not on the line, the other guy's is. And so here, David is saying, look, I know what this is about. This is not a battle between Israelites and Philistines. It's a battle for uh, primacy of God. It's, it's a battle for the reputation of the Lord. And he continues with that same thing because he, it, Saul tries to give him his armor to protect him against Goliath, who's wearing a lot of armor. I mean, hundreds of pounds of armor. And, and so David tries these things on, and he says, I can't even move in these things. I, these aren't mine. I haven't tested these. L- let me just use what it is that I've proven in battle before against lions and bears. And so he picked up his sling and, and five smooth stones out of the river, and he heads out. And now we got to do the smack talk beforehand. So the uh, Goliath sees him, and this is my dog that you come at me with sticks. He sees this guy there with, with a slingshot. And and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And then he says, come to me and I'll give your flesh. This is singular, your, by the way, to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David says, hey, I'm not just going to kill you. I'm better at smack talk than you are. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. I have everything I need. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. And then he didn't say, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. He says, I'll give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel, and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he'll give me into your hand. And then he came near to meet David. David picked up his sling, threw a rock, hit him in the head, and he died. So we get 48 verses of buildup, one verse of battle. But, but David knows it's not about him in a way that Saul and, and the rest of the armies there don't see. And that's what makes David the greatest leader in, in Israel history. is because he, he knows that it's not about him. It's always about God. It's never, ever about him. He doesn't make it personal, and that's what Paul tells us to do, right? He says that that our battles aren't with flesh and blood. No. They're with powers and principalities. And we've got to put on the right armor, not the armor of Saul, but the armor of David, the army that Paul uh, speaks of, the armor that Paul speaks of. That's the armor that we need to fight the battles that we fight, because the problem is we fight against flesh and blood, but the reality is we don't know 
what God's going to do with flesh and blood. Look at Paul himself. You know, if you're fighting Paul, you're potentially fighting one of the Lord's anointed. You just don't know it yet, and neither does Paul. And that's the thing, is we've got to stop fighting people and start fighting the spiritual battle behind it. Don't fight what you can see, but fight the unseen enemy that you know is behind all of it. And that is exactly what we're called to do. And that's what we see here in this passage from Mark, in this gospel passage. John was arrested, and Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's, it's time. It's today. And then he, so he passes along, and he calls Simon and Peter and James and John. He calls them to follow me. Right? So follow me. And then they're going to have reason to fear. And that's the reason that after the, the resurrection, the first words he speaks to his disciples are peace. Be with you because they had fear. They had the opposite of peace. They had fear. And the, 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 the definition of peace, shalom, it doesn't have anything to do with the absence of conflict. It has to do with standing and knowing whose battle it really is and who's in charge of all things. And so, so he calls them to follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. You know, so I'm going to repurpose your skills so that you might uh, do the things for the kingdom that are necessary. And that's the thing I think we have to recognize is a lot of what we have for skills in the, in the business world or whatever um, are actually skills that can be, that, that whatever you're really, really good at, that can be repurposed for the kingdom as well. It, it has kingdom purposes and kingdom promise behind it. And so they go to Capernaum from there, and on the Sabbath they went into the synagogue and he was teaching there. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And so I want to give you a quick heads up on how scribes taught and, and how they still teach today. So if you, if you watch a Jewish rabbi teach, he's always going to be referring to uh, his rabbi or, or another scholar. Because what he's trying to do is two things, right? One is when it, the sources of scribal authority are the Word of God and the historical interpretation of those things. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to interpret it exactly the way the person before you did, but you've got to at least start there. You've got to say, I, I'm, my starting point for what I'm getting ready to tell you is what Rabbi so-and-so said. It's, it's what Rashi said, or the Rambam, or the Ramban, or the Zohar, any of those people, and, and tons and tons more, because you're appealing to the history and the tradition of interpretation within Judaism. And so you're not bringing something new. You're teaching on the authority of those who have come before you. So when Jesus comes, he doesn't appeal to any of those rabbis. He doesn't appeal to any of the sages. He doesn't appear to the historical and traditional interpretation of things. Now, now he, he, he doesn't deny the historical and, and uh, interpretation of those things either. He doesn't deny the traditions in, in, in all ways, in, not in the ways we would like maybe for him to. But he didn't, and so we have to we have to be aware of that. But but when he taught, he taught with the authority of the one who was the lawgiver. He taught with a different authority. He didn't appeal to those other teachers who had come before him. He he appealed only to the truth of the word of God. And so Jesus taught in a different way than the scribes. And so he teaches they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority. And then immediately there was a man who comes up with an unclean spirit and cries out, What have you to to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, said, be silent and come out of him. He didn't need the, the, the testimony of a demon. And, nor was it time. It, it wasn't the testimony of demons that he wanted people to believe. He wanted them to believe what they saw and what they heard and come to their own conclusions about these things. 
So he, he rebukes him and, and he comes out of him and he convulses and cries out with a loud voice and comes out of him and they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. We're, they're beginning to see something. This is different. He is new. He is not like those who have come before. And so we need to evaluate him, which is exactly what Jesus wanted them to do. So it's not wrong that they're choosing to evaluate him and they're trying to make a decision about does he fit in with what's come before or is he something new and different? And if he is something new and different, what is he? Is he a, is he a phony? Or is he maybe, possibly, the Messiah of whom John spoke? The Messiah we as a people have been looking for. The disciples were willing to get out of the boats and follow him. Peter was the one who got out of the boat and walked on water. All of them here, though, get out of their boats and come and follow Jesus. They were willing to at least bet that much, that I'm going to leave the past behind and I'm going to come and follow Jesus because I believe that it's possible that he might be the Messiah, and I don't want to miss it. It's important that we not hedge our bets and that we not, we not leave things behind as markers to say, I'm going to go back to this if this doesn't work out. I tried to do that when I went to seminary, right? I mean, because I knew I could continue to make pretty good money. And so I had a partner, and, and I had stepped away from the partnership. But I said, hey, I'd like to hang on and, and continue to do some work. I'd like to do, you know, maybe uh, 40, 50 hours, of, uh, billable hours a, a month after, while I'm in seminary. And, and so we had worked out a plan for doing that. But I said, I don't know what my schedule is going to be. you got to give me a week or two to, to kind of come up with that and figure it out. And then I can fly back and forth and, and come and work on on some weekends. When, and it worked out even better than I thought. I was going to have long weekends, almost every single weekend, at, at the first year in seminary at least. And so I, I kind of made that plan in my mind. I gave him a call, and he said, you know, I've decided it won't work. Huh? Huh? I, I'm not sure how I'm going to huh, survive this, paying for seminary, not working for the next several years. Um, I, I, this was not going to be as easy as I thought it was going to be. But God didn't allow me to do that. He didn't give me that backstop behind me and... and, and you know, it was the right thing to do without any question at all because I would have hedged my bets. And whenever there was time for fear, I would have reached out for those things and said, well, maybe he didn't call me. And I saw people do that. I saw people come to seminary and do that very thing. Um, in in the gospel, not in the gospel, but in the book of Acts and the reading we have there from Acts 11, 1 to 18, it, it, this is exactly what happened, right? So the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And then Peter goes on and tells his vision. He says, hey, here's why I did it. God sent me a vision, sent me this thing about this, this sheet with all these animals in it, including reptiles and birds of prey that we would never consider kosher to eat. And, and he said, go and kill and eat. And he told me to do this thing. I'm doing it because I was obedient to the heavenly vision that God gave me in this and said, you know, what God has made clean, don't call common. So he said, so I, 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 it happened three times. And then it was, that sheet was drawn up into heaven. I mean, he's authenticating it by saying it didn't, it didn't just come one time. It, it, there were three separate proclamations concerning that that convinced me to do it. And at that moment, then these men arrived in Joppa at the house where we were, and he sent me to Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with him, making no distinction. And these six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And, he, and then he goes on and says, and this is what he told me. So he's having a vision about the same time I'm having a vision. And so I, I, and I went. 
And then he said, uh, send a Joppa and call Simon, bring Simon, who is called Peter. He'll declare to you a message by which you'll be saved, you and your whole household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on him, just as on us at the beginning. It's a Gentile Pentecost. The same thing happened that you all, that drew you guys in the first place. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, then who was I to stand in God's way? It's a good point, right? What are you going to (laughs) do? What are you going to say? But he points to the six men who have gone with him, not just generically. He's pointing to him and, and those six men and saying, just ask them. They saw the whole thing. I've got witnesses to what happened here. They know everything that happened. And then they know that this was all in accordance with God's will. They can testify to what happened and why we went and what happened when we got there. And so when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> it's essentially the bottom line here. It's like God's doing a new thing. We don't know what to make of it, but what happened was obviously of God, so we're not going to fuss at you anymore, Peter. We're not going to try and stand in the way of it because, you know... It's the same basic attitude Gamaliel takes with the council earlier. If this thing's of God, you can't get in the way of it. It's if a minute, it'll fail and go away right away. So they're willing to wait, and they're willing to say, okay, Lord, I don't know how this turns out and how it ends, but I'm willing to wait for you to show me. And sometimes that's what we have to do. We want to jump ahead of God, and we want to make a value decision along the way, and, and it's not time for that value decision to be made yet. So let's not be premature in our decisions and the, and the things that we think we see in our evaluation of those things, let's, let's give it time to develop before we come to that conclusion.